Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. For the rest of you, go ahead and turn to Acts 19, if you're not already there. Well, good morning, church. I have some stats for you this morning. I know you love stats. I heard 37% of all stats are made up anyways. We're just going to do pictures. So the average American watches three hours of TV every day. Three hours. Some more, some less. That equates to about 141 hours per month. Uh, That is about 1,692 hours a year. And if you are blessed to live about 65 years, that equates to about um, one, oops, sorry, 109,980 hours in a lifetime. I don't know that you could see that really, um, but those are 10,000 hour blocks. Um, but that's just TV. If we add in phones and games and that number there now doubles, um, and we are somewhere in the realm of 200 some odd thousand hours that we are spending in front of a screen being fed something in a lifetime. So in our waking hours, we are digesting about 38 to 43% of our waking hours digesting whatever our screens are telling us to digest. Now, in comparison... Uh, about 32%, no, we're just going to go with Protestant. If you don't know, you're, you're a Protestant if you're in here. At least you're in a Protestant church. Um, 32% of Protestant churchgoers, okay? Not just identifiers, but churchgoers, 32% read their Bible every day with 12% never reading the Bible at all. When we go to teens... Uh, that number plummets to about 3% reading their Bible every day and soars to 37% never reading their Bible at all, and the number of screen time increases significantly. So, let me show you why, where I'm headed with all of that data. Um, the culture in which we live, culture is shaped by inherited values. So whatever our culture around us, the people around us value, that's what shapes the culture. Those values are shaped by religion, by media, by fashion, advertising, sports, entertainment, education, so on. So if we think about the amount of TV that we're intaking uh, versus the amount of Bible we're intaking, just the average American Protestant church-going Christian is being catechized significantly more by the world than they are the Word of God. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, he wrote, we don't want a church that moves with the world. We want a church that will move the world, right? I think we can agree with that. To be a church that moves the world, we have to be steeped in the kingdom of God. We steep our lives in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of the world, which is very easy to do. 
And I don't mean we have to cut ourselves off from everything culture-related, move out into the desert. Um, that's where cults begin, right? Um, we don't want to do that. We want to be in culture. Culture's a beautiful thing. I mean, we need to be reflections and ambassadors of the gospel within the culture we are in. And as we preach Christ... And as we live out the gospel, the culture around us is going to be challenged and it's going to start to change because the Lord is redeeming his church. The Lord is building his kingdom. We saw baptisms this morning, a baptism this morning. There's one at the mission. We saw one the youth did recently. There's been numerous baptisms. And as the spirit starts to move in our lives and in our churches, and he starts changing lives, and lives start looking like Jesus, the culture is going to start to shift and move and look like Jesus. But people are not going to say, Thank you, Christians. We are very happy that you're here. Um, actually, they're going to fight. <laughs> they're going, when you challenge culture, when you challenge anything, it's going to rear its head and fight against you. And we see that in our text today. We see that these, these men rise up and they are fighting against what Paul and the, or the Christians are doing in Ephesus Persecution amplifies, and we've seen it all throughout Acts. <clears throat> People start turning to Jesus. They start giving things away. They start looking like Jesus. And you would think everyone would be like, that's wonderful. Instead, they say, go away. We don't want you at all. So we need to understand first that the gospel is preached in two specific cultures. Look at the text. Acts 19 Starting in verse 21, now, after these events, Paul resolved, so just real quick, um, remember, Paul, after these events, means Paul has been preaching in Ephesus for two years. He has been, there has been a miraculous, I mean, he had like handkerchiefs that were healing folks, and the Lord was doing just amazing things in Ephesus, and the church was growing. We see Demetrius, he says, the whole world, he was pretty he used hyperbole quite a bit, but he said the whole world is going after uh, this, this message that Paul is preaching. So those are the events in which we are talking. So now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also go to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So right off the bat, we notice that Paul is, he's planning to spread the gospel to the ends of the known world. He has hit so many different areas already. He is, he is taking seriously the call that we saw in the very beginning of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. Paul is taking that very seriously because he knows that the Lord, he desires the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth to redeem his people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue in the name to proclaim the name of Jesus just like we saw in the call to worship this morning. So Paul 
ever since he got knocked down by Jesus, has been going to key areas, Jerusalem, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Cyprus, Corinth, Ephesus. And now he says, I must go to Rome. Church, this should be our desire. Our desire, not go to Rome. I mean, you can go to Rome if you want. It's actually in heavy need of hearing the true gospel. Um, But our desire should be that all nations hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that. We want his kingdom to come. We want every tribe, every tongue, every, every nation to worship Jesus as king. And I, I honestly believe as a church, that's our desire. We, we support missions, local, global. We, we want the gospel to go out. We even believe it's going to happen. But we often fail to see what what is my part like the church yes but what is my part and I think we fail to understand just how important it is just how we live our lives out every day plays a huge part in building the kingdom of God Jesus calls us in the sermon on the mount to be salt and light preserving culture from rot Seasoning with the gospel of Jesus to bring about beauty and, and truth. Shining the light into the darkness, illuminating the truth and revealing corruption, the things that the world exalts that are actually killing you. But the heart of speaking the gospel into culture, it's not erasing culture. It's not getting rid of culture. Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't seek to erase Jewish culture. He, he shows how Jesus is perfecting Jewish culture. When the Gentiles, they come into the body of Christ, they go to, they go to Jerusalem, they say, well, what do we tell them? What do, we, what do they need to look like? Don't they need to get circumcised? Don't they need to look like Jews? And, and the council says, no. Do you remember what we read in Acts 15? It was only like six months ago. So... <laughs> He says, write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. They were told to stay away from the things that are going to pull you from Jesus Christ. Stay away from the things that are not in the kingdom of God and seek the, the kingdom of God. There are a lot of good things in culture, but sin and idolatry and selfishness has, has tainted our culture. So the gospel comes in and it starts to expose those wicked parts of culture and destroy that which is tearing us away from God and his kingdom. It starts to enliven and invigorate that um, which causes us to live the will of God out in thousands of different ways. The diverse body of Christ, if you travel, um, if you go on mission trips, you see how God is doing the same thing. It just looks a little bit different in different cultures. In American culture, there's a lot to celebrate. Freedom, diversity, success, hard work, innovation, love. This is all it gets tainted, right? It starts to get tainted with sin. So freedom, 
when it becomes ultimate, we just stop caring about other people. It's about my freedom. I don't care about you. Capitalism becomes a way to exploit people and make money and at the sake of people. Hard work turns us into workaholics and we neglect our families. So we see these are good things, but then we start to taint them with sin and they become filthy things. Love becomes whatever you want as long as it makes you feel good as an individual. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks, just as long as it makes you feel good. There is nothing going to make America great other than the redemption of our culture by the blood of Jesus Christ and a people who submit to him every single day. Believers who believe more in the kingdom of God than in the kingdom of man. Christians who reflect Christ and not their favorite news station, politician, or celebrity. And this happens when we're led by the Spirit of God. We have to be, because our flesh wants to look like the world. We want to exalt the things that we love instead of following what God loves. So we need to resolve in our spirits to follow the Spirit of God. This is what Paul does. He is resolved in the Spirit to go to Rome. He's resolved in the Spirit, by the Spirit, to lead, be led by the Spirit. Even if we'll see in Acts 20, I forgot to edit my slides. Sorry about that. Not even in there. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. He's resolved to follow the Spirit even if it means imprisonment and affliction. He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But he says, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. I will follow Christ. If, if no matter what is going on, most of us, if we got that call, if we got that, the Spirit told us, hey, wherever you go, you're gonna be afflicted and you're going to be imprisoned, we would just not go. We would be like, I'm going to amp up my screen time a little bit and not do that because that's uncomfortable. Are you resolved to go where the Spirit leads, to live out the gospel? Because as we do, as we proclaim the gospel, it's going to start challenging cultural worship. The things that our culture exalts, the things that our culture puts in the place of God in all cultures. If you, if you think about what's going on in Ephesus, it's been turned upside down by the gospel that Paul has been living and preaching. All of the residents, they have heard of this new religion we see in 19, chapter 19, verse 10. This continued, so Paul continued there for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
They had seen miraculous works happening, accomplished in the name of Jesus. Verse 11, Paul was doing, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Fear had fallen on many. We see in verse 17, worship had erupted, that the name of Jesus was extolled in Ephesus. Many had turned to Jesus. We see in verse 26, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Christianity started infiltrating the surrounding culture, and people were being changed. People were being healed. They were, they were turning from false gods to the true and living God. They were seeing the power of Jesus, his name proclaimed, and even demons submitting to him. And this started to make people really uncomfortable, right? Because the message of the gospel started challenging, and it, it starts challenging first, we see in our text, how they make money. It started challenging their livelihood, we saw this in last week in the burning of the books, the magic books, uh, are those who practice magic arts in verse 19. We see, and a number of those had practiced magic arts, brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all, and they, they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver, which we said was around $50 million. Anything takes a $50 million hit today is going to raise their eyebrows and say something is going on. But these believers, they determined that they were no longer going to practice or finance the magic arts. They had seen a greater power, and his name was Jesus Christ. So they were turning away from that which was evil. And you know that those making all of this money off these books were shaken. Millions of dollars burning in the streets. Multitudes turning from their business to the living God. And just look at our text today, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbances concerning the way. If you don't know, the way is how they refer to Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades, and he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was about four times the size of the temple of Athena in in Athens. Humongous. It was world-renowned. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It served as a bank, 
People would bring their money in. They said that this is a place that we could, we could deposit our money. It's going to be safe here. This is uh, under the God of protection. Demetrius, he saw, though, the, the writing on the wall. If people are turning away from Artemis and toward the living God, then our business and businesses like ours are going to take a hit. You see, the gospel exposed what these craftsmen actually worshipped. They worshipped their wealth. Sure, they were faithful to Artemis. I'm sure they, they prayed or, or what, however they worshipped Artemis, their silver shrines, but their language is telling. It brought no little business, Luke writes. From, the business we have, from this business we have our wealth. Danger to our trade may come into disrepute. So he has challenged, the gospel has challenged how they were making money we see the same thing. Jesus challenges the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Jesus looked at him, loved him. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. There's great power in wealth. There, it, is, it is great, uh, and to challenge that brings a lot of friction. In our own hearts, we feel that challenge. And Jesus plainly states, uh, no one can serve two masters. For either you'll hate one and love the other or who be devoted to one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money. So we see this, this friction happening. And we see the same thing. In the latter part of the 19th century, the Salvation Army, uh, they went through some really terrible persecution. They were preaching Christ, their Christianity. It started to touch the pocketbooks of society. Um, and the, those who managed pubs and those who managed brothels, they rose up because this Christianity was taking customers out of their pubs and brothels and bringing them into the churches. And they did not like that. So they rose up against the churches. But just imagine what would happen in American culture if Christians determined to not participate in the things the materialistic and sensualistic world around us celebrates so much. So many Christians, we've, we've been desensitized to the lures and the poisons of the world and the flesh and Satan, and we just don't even see it anymore. A lot of Christians celebrate what the, what the word of God would come against indefinitely. Multitudes within the professing church enjoy the most degrading entertainment without any remorse whatsoever. Believer, we just saw Baptism this morning is reminding us we are dead to that old lifestyle. And we are new. We are alive in Jesus. We're called to live that way. And what would happen if we poured our money and our time into advancing the kingdom of God instead of into fancy toys or sex or sports or looks? What would happen? I will tell you what would happen. We would be taking care of the poor and the needy. 
We would be investing time in the depressed, overworked, single mother. We would be gathering as families, investing in the lost in our homes instead of doling our minds in front of the TV. We would be discipling our children and our families with the words, with the word. The culture would start to change because people are living out the kingdom of God instead of hiding until he returns. Culture would start to change because believers would be turning away from the lures of sin toward the life offered by Jesus Christ. And not only turning it away from it, but living it out in front of others so that they say, can you tell me why you have such a great hope? Remember, culture is shaped by inherited values. So if we value what the world values, we will never, ever, ever change culture. We'll be absorbed and lost in it. A good place to start is asking, where is my money going? What am I supporting? Am I supporting a worldly system that is anti-gospel or are my funds working toward building up the kingdom of God? That is just a good place to constantly check. And not only does it challenge, the gospel message doesn't only challenge our livelihood now that we're all uncomfortable It challenges false religion. We can be a little more comfortable with this for a moment. Verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. The idols and the shrines, they were in the process of losing their good name. Demetrius, he sees that as an issue. Artemis is being unmasked as nothing but a dead idol, a rock that fell from the sky. People are not going to buy models of non-deities that they don't revere anymore. They're not going to go to this big, awesome, beautiful temple that is a temple made to a non-god. All that beauty and grandeur would lose its value. The goddess Artemis herself was in danger of being robbed of her deity, we read, of her majesty. If people kept listening to Paul, they would would see that she was not a true god. The prophets have been doing this for centuries. They are constantly saying that the smith is taking a piece of wood and they're making a god out of it and then what's left over, they're warming themselves and they're just showing how foolish these false gods are. And we we often read that and we think, yeah, that is pretty foolish. The Lord over and over and over reveals to Israel that he alone is a true God. The church, part of speaking the gospel is exposing to people false religion, false gods, false hope. And this has to be done prayerfully. It has to be done lovingly. It has to be done through one-on-one conversation a lot of times, inviting people into your life, revealing to them the truth, the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit in you. It is not aggressive It's not degrading. It's done by living out as a person of the kingdom of God. Patiently, 
lovingly speaking the gospel. Paul was in Ephesus for two years before they rose up. But as we speak and live out the gospel, it starts exposing the foolishness of false gods and false religions. Some of those religions, maybe Buddhism or something else, but more than likely in American culture, it's a religion of sports, it's a religion of social justice, it's a religion of politics, family, sex, entertainment. Whatever it is, the gospel is going to challenge it. But as as believers, we have to make sure our lives are truly reflecting the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and not the world or the false religions of the world. So we cannot challenge the false worship of sports if we miss church to put our kids who have less than a 1% chance of going pro into tournaments. We cannot challenge the false worship of sex and sexuality if, we just, if we're just as tied up in those things in sex outside of message, marriage and pornography. We cannot challenge those things if we are already giving in to them. We cannot challenge the false religion of politics if we spend more time putting our hope in the right or the left and not the king of kings. Church, the way we challenge false religion is by living out what we truly believe with complete abandon. It has to be the kingdom of God first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Dying to self and living for Christ. And if that doesn't challenge us enough, the message of the gospel will challenge our collective sense of identity. As they go on, as, as they're preaching, and, and Demetrius, he knows that uh, his God has been challenged and his living has been challenged, but he knows he needs to rise up the city around him. He needs to get them excited. So he starts to talk to them, and when they hear this, they're enraged, and they start crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocarchus, that's not right, Tarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel, but Paul wished to go out to the crowd and disciples wouldn't, they wouldn't let him go and even some of the Asiarchs who were his friends sent to him, sent to him and they urged him, don't venture out into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another and In the assembly, there was confusion, and most of them, they didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom was from the Jews, to put him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand to make a defense to the crowd, and they recognized he was a Jew, and for about two hours, they cry out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were proud. They were proud of their city, They were proud of their God, their heritage, their customs. We get that. As Americans, we understand. If you just, last Sunday was 9-11. We were gathered together 21 years ago around a collective sense of identity as Americans. 
Think about England right now. They are gathered around a collective sense of identity over the death of Queen Elizabeth. A line 10 miles long. Weights estimated 30 hours just to walk by her casket. In Ephesus, they're gathered around their God. This is what they've grown up. This is what they've known This is what they've celebrated. They were in the midst of a festival here. They were already celebrating Artemis. And some of them didn't even know what was going on. They were just there. They jumped in the mob. Why? Because their collective sense of identity was challenged. We're Ephesians. That's who we are. We're followers of the goddess Artemis. We will fight anyone who comes against us. But as Christians, our identity is meant to be in Christ alone. We're images of the Lord God. We're priests to his Father, we read in Revelation. Our collective identity is to be in Christ alone. So that starts to challenge other collective senses of identities that we have. And then if that's challenging us, it's going to challenge the world Around us. Our unity in Christ overrules our unity as United States of American citizens. Our unity in Christ overrules our family unity, even. And that's not a bad thing. Neither one of those are bad things. But our unity in Christ comes first. Our unity in Christ overrules our social status, our, our ethnic identity, our political alignment, our sports identity, whatever identity that we gather around, being one in Christ overrules it. And when that's true, when Christians unite in Christ, the world starts seeing the power of the gospel. Like, why are these people that would never ever be in the same room together, why are they together singing songs to this God? What power is this? And I guarantee you there will be riots and uprisings when the gospel challenges culture. But we're called to remain faithful. This church, Jesus is redeeming culture, people, All nations, every person one day will announce Jesus is the King of Kings. So even though riots and slander and false accusations may come, we're called to remain faithful. And I want to close with this this idea that cultures should stumble over the gospel, not us. Paul I'm sure he wasn't super happy about it, was hindered from proclaiming the gospel here, from going out and addressing the crowd. We see um, no one could say anything really. They were so amped up about what was going on that they just wouldn't hear anything. Paul's kept from the theater by his friends. Even some of the high-ranking Ephesians are saying, don't come in here. You're going to probably be beaten. Not that he cares. He's already been beaten, stoned, and drug outside of the, the city. He doesn't care, so they had to hold him back. But he was kept also by the sovereign hand of God of speaking in to that craziness. 
the one who knew that this hysteric crowd is not going to hear whatever he has to say. And I need to be willing to ask myself, and you need to be willing to ask yourself, am I willing to be interrupted by my friends to take a step back and keep my mouth shut when I need to keep my mouth shut? Are you willing to be interrupted by your friends or your pastor or the elders of the church? Are you, are you open to someone saying, how about not saying that right now? Paul would have certainly preached Christ. He would have certainly said that Jesus is the true God and not Artemis. He does it in Athens. He does it in Iconium. But the Lord, by his sovereign hand, whatever reason he had, stopped him. May we be willing to see the sovereign hand of God in times when we need to shut our mouths so that people can hear the message of the gospel, not when they're emotionally charged, but when they're ready. We can wait. There are times, believe it or not, that you just don't have to respond on social media. Let that sink in. There are times you don't, you don't have to. Nothing. You can just keep scrolling. That's the beauty of that. You don't need to comment when someone's fired up. You don't need to pour gas on the fire. And then we have at the end of this passage this really strange turn of events The town clerk, he speaks on behalf of the Christians. So let me just read that to you, starting in verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do, not, do nothing rash. For you have brought these men who were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are preconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. First, this brother was a politician. He knows how to throw water on a fire. He knows if we keep going, Rome is going to make us stop. So we'd better stop. He, he knew he needed to stop this. But secondly, he just shrugs off the gospel. He, he says the idea of our God is being made by hands. It's foolish. Let me remind you, the stone fell out of the sky. It's a gift from Zeus. We don't need to worry about what this Paul is saying. We know and the whole world knows that Artemis is God or a God. He's not worried about what these men are proclaiming. He's not worried that they're proclaiming another religion. They actually celebrated many religions. He boasted in the greatness of Ephesus. He boasted in the greatness of Artemis. But even in his rejection of the gospel, even when he is rejecting what Paul has been preaching for two years, he still speaks favorably 
about Christians. So we need to hear this. There is a way to present the gospel to unbelievers so that when our message is rejected, it's not because we're jerks. It's not because we went in and tried to force something down their throats or degraded what they believed. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. Peter, he says, it's honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. They stumble over the message and not the believer. They stumble over Jesus and not the believers. So may we push people to Jesus and let them stumble over him and not us. Remember the quote that we began with. We don't want a church that moves with the world. We want a church that will move the world. We need to ask ourselves, are we living as a church that will move the world? Am I living as an individual, as part of a body that will move the world? I just want to remind you that in the next couple of songs, we're going to have uh, people in the back that we can pray at those tables if you want. But this is time for us to pray, to respond, to think about the message, to think about our lives, to repent, to seek guidance, to worship. May we respond. May we be a church that lives to move the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are alone, the God, the only God and King. We worship you, we praise you, we confess that you, Jesus, are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You alone are the way, the truth, and the life. You alone are our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the times that we have been the stumbling block of that message of your grace and mercy to a a lost and dying world. Forgive us of the times that we forget that we were also dead in our trespasses and sins. I pray that you would give us the boldness and the conviction to live for the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge the culture around us with the gospel. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541 756 2591 or email us at pray at houserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon. 
877-357-9459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.